You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back Podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. Todd Wagner is the founder and CEO of Charity Network, a company that harnesses the power of celebrity, technology, and media to raise awareness and funds for causes around the world. With a mission to help charities transition from analog to digital, Charity Network has raised more than $400 million to date. In both business and in philanthropy, the transition from analog to digital has been a longtime theme of Todd's career. In 1995, he introduced streaming media to the world when he launched Broadcast.com with his partner, Mark Cuban. He then co-founded Wagner Cuban Companies, spanning content creation, distribution, and exhibition through 2929 Entertainment, Magnolia Pictures, and Landmark Theaters. Todd has also committed millions of dollars and his own time and energy to improve the lives of at-risk children through the Todd Wagner Foundation. Todd is a Broadway fan, and his companies have worked closely with the Broadway community for the past five years. Todd is also my boss at the Charity Network, and I have learned so much from him, and I'm so thrilled to have him here today as a guest on the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Welcome, Todd. Thank you, Jan. So I thought we might start and do a little warm-up. I know you're also into sports, so I thought like a little warm-up thing would be good. I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire warm-up questions, and you just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay? Sounds great. Here we go. What are three adjectives that describe you? Uh, motivated, uh, disciplined, and fair. What do you most give a damn about? Everything. Uh, but particularly uh, this country. Amen. What are you most proud of? Um, probably the, the things that I've accomplished throughout my life, but hopefully what I'm most proud of is the way that I interact with people and the way that um, myself and people that work with me interact with the world. And what are you most grateful for? Everything. 
I know that my life has been a bit of a Hollywood or Broadway story, and I'm grateful every day for the way that it's played out. I know we're going to talk a little bit about some of those things, but I never forget every single day um, how fortunate I am to be where I am. And can you tell us about a random act of kindness that you have performed recently? I do it all the time, um, but I don't really like to talk about it publicly. I mean, I've, I've taken care of lots of different people, employees, people we've met, people we've known, uh, things we hear about locally in the community, things I hear about nationally that we behind the scenes help, donate, participate, get involved in. But again, we don't do it to, to talk about it. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And I'm a big fan of whether you want to call it pay it forward or just good old fashioned karma. Um, I believe it's important. I do believe that what goes around comes around and, and what you put out there into the world at some point that comes back to either impact and enhance your life or maybe negatively detract from it. So yeah, we, we do things all the time. And when you say we, I think you mean, you, but also you with your companies, but also you with your family. And you have an amazing wife and great kids. And you are all very socially active, social impact and and charitable and give of your time and your energies. And I've witnessed it myself. And um, I think you, Todd, are one of the most interesting people that I know. And I love to start off this conversation with you telling the listeners about your story, because I think that your story is so motivating and so inspirational. Well, you know, I think obviously the, the, the centerpiece of your, of your podcast is about philanthropy, but I think everybody has a journey of how they get to their approach to philanthropy and how they get there is very dependent on how their life turned out. And I always say, and Jan, you've heard me say it, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And the reason I say that all the time is because our backgrounds drive our perspectives. So our ability to be objective about an issue, any issue, is somewhat limited because our life experiences guide us as to how we see something. And it is a challenge for all of us to be able to see both sides of an issue, to be able to look at things um, from different lenses and different perspectives. And I think we as humans have to work at that every single day. So I know that for my own story. So now my story, I grew up in Gary, Indiana. Gary is a, uh, it's a steel mill town, used to be a blue collar kind of rough steel mill town. Unfortunately, it is degraded to the point where uh, it is not a very good city anymore in almost any part of it. So it was an interesting place to grow up, went off to school at Indiana University in Bloomington. Uh, I was a business major, didn't really know what else to do. I wasn't interested in the sciences. So I studied accounting and finance. And then I went off to law school at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And like a lot of people, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And what was put into my head and so therefore i try to do the same and i try to whenever i speak to young people say the same what was hammered into my head was to get an education i mean the one thing that no one can take from you 
is if you get educated. No one can take that from you, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter where you're from, no matter what somebody can say about you. The more that you have an education, the more doors that are potentially open to you in this world. And I know we're going through some rough times in this country right now, but it comes back to the fact that whenever I speak to young people, the more that you drop out early, the more doors that get shut because more opportunities will not come your way and people won't be interested in, in hiring you. And for every exception there is, and there are exceptions of entrepreneurs and incredibly well-to-do people that dropped out early, there are 99.99% more examples of the people that life didn't go the way they had hoped. And so the one thing I always say to people is please, please, please stay in school. I know it's harder for some. I know it's not as enjoyable for some, but it is the one thing that begins to level the playing field for people, no matter where they come from. Um, and that is something that I think is incredibly important. So I, anyway, I graduated from the University of Virginia, did not really like law school, didn't think I would be a lawyer, but I was kind of trapped in it. I had obviously paid for it, had gone through all the years of doing it. And you feel obligated sometimes in life to take the path that others think you should be taking. So I went and worked for a law firm, worked for three years in the first firm, a big national law firm in Dallas, really disliked it. Um, then I changed law firms, hoping maybe that would fix it. And then finally, you have that aha moment where I am just a square peg in a round hole. This is not going to work for me. This is not going to be what I do with the rest of my life. And so I made junior partner in this firm and six months later I resigned. And that was the moment for me where I knew there was no going back. My life was going to be different from that point forward. I had just stepped off the treadmill. But I had this education and I had this background and I had this skill set and I had confidence that perhaps maybe something amazing could happen if I just, you know, went through it. So I spent the next year interviewing with everyone in Dallas to try to get a job on the business side and no one would hire me. They looked at my resume and they saw that the finance and accounting and the legal degree and all they really saw was the lawyer part. So no, I couldn't get a job in an investment bank or in the venture capital industry or in private equity or any company. So I thought about, do I go back yet again to school to get an MBA, even though that felt a little silly because I had an undergraduate degree in business. It's not like my undergrad degree was a, a liberal arts. But along that way, I sat and talked to a guy named Mark Cuban and Mark and I had gone to, to college together. Mark had already sold his first business, which I always laughingly refer to as the one that should have been worth so much money, a company called Microsolutions. Hmm. And he wasn't sure what he was going to do next. He was day trading. He was taking some acting lessons. He was having fun. He'd sold that business for what seemed like a bazillion dollars. He'd sold it for about $6 million uh, to CompuServe and was just trying to figure out what to do. And, and obviously, from that came what eventually became known as broadcast.com. So 
we were the first basically in the world to stream audio and video over a computer. And these are these moments in life that, again, I go back to education, I go back to drive, I go back to desire. I knew this was my one chance. And, and I knew I would not get a second. And if I was going to hopefully do something, I hoped, uh, amazing, this was going to be my moment. And I had to do everything. And so I did. We, uh, we put all our friends in the company. We, made, we ended up making about four or 500 people millionaires from the company that we built. But what I pledged to all of them was that I couldn't pledge whether it would work or not. But what I could tell them was I would give them everything I had. And that's what I did. I committed to all my friends and everyone I knew that you would never see me out doing anything. I was going to work and I was going to sleep. We ended up, I was the CEO of that company. We were uh, the most trafficked multimedia website in the world. We were years ahead of everybody in understanding streaming media. And we had lightning in a bottle. And, it, and that doesn't happen often in life. But again, I knew this was my moment. And, and I was never going to fail due to lack of effort. And that's what I did. Mark and I got incredibly lucky. I'd like to think, you know, we, we, we worked pretty hard. We put a lot into it. Um, I always say great things happen at a four-way intersection of luck, timing, hard work, and smarts. And I tell people that you can only control two of those variables. And, and that's to me what life is sometimes. There are random acts of kindness and bad things that happen to people along with everything else. You can only control what you can control, and that is really your own effort. And I just, for me, this was what I was meant to do. I remember finally feeling fulfilled, satiated, all the things that I wanted. And it was not, let me be super clear, it was not because I wanted to make a lot of money. It was because for me, I needed to be my own boss. I needed to be the one where the buck stopped on my desk. I needed to be the one to help drive the ship. I always say, you know, I think leaders, they are to inspire, they are to listen, and they are to lead. And I felt like those were things, those were traits that, that I could do. Um, and that made sense to me. So anyway, so we eventually sold that business to Yahoo, who in those days was the Google of the world. <laughs> yeah. They had a hundred billion dollar market cap. They were blowing and going. And we thought we were doing the right thing. We were going to take our multimedia business and layer it into their text-based business and create the next huge media company. And that was the plan. But as I learned, and I tell entrepreneurs this all the time, when you sell your company, you sell your company. <laughs> and, and someone else will decide the future and someone else will decide its destiny. It is now officially out of your control. And when we sold to Yahoo, we had two deals on the table. We had one to buy MGM's library, which is kind of poetic in that they just sold to Amazon not too long ago here. But we had a letter of intent to buy their library back when we were broadcast.com. And we said, Yahoo, you should, you should buy this. You should close this deal. This will be amazing. And they could not get their arms around why that was going to be important. 
why would it be important to own movies hmm. to potentially stream <laughs> over the internet? Yes, we can all laugh about that. Um, but that's what we were facing. They understood text. They did not understand where it was going. And you find that in business. You know, we find that with the pandemic, you know, people get caught up in how it was as opposed to where it is. Pivoting mm -hmm. is hard for people. You know, people are caught up in the that it was the alpha variant. Now it's a delta variant. It's a completely different beast than it was a year ago. And, and you know, you find that in business, too. They get caught up in, again, back to their hammer and their nail. And it's very different to see a different perspective. And that, unfortunately, uh, was what happened with Yahoo. And so I vividly remember saying, well, you should just buy it. It's a, it's a rounding error for you guys to own all these great movies. Well, what would we do with them? <laughs> well, I don't know. Perhaps we could stream them to people. That's what we do. And we're streaming television shows already. I would think if we got a bunch of them, people might pay a monthly fee. I don't know. And, and if not, you know, they could pay one off to have it. So those are the moments that I am, I am blessed to have experienced when you're in the zeitgeist, when you're in the middle of everything that matters. And I've obviously talked to the Netflix founders many times about this. You know, we, we were five years ahead of everybody. They were still shipping DVDs in the mail. Mm -hmm. We were streaming, but they didn't do it. And then we also owned a company called SimpleNet that was user-generated videos. And again, think YouTube. Um, we were about five years ahead and we told Yahoo this was going to be really important, that people were going to create content. People were going to want to be in charge. People were going to want to be the content creator. They were not going to sit back anymore and just allow it to be dictated to them. And they couldn't get their arms around it. And so, again, it's obviously my life has been incredibly blessed, but those are the moments that are very difficult. And then Yahoo asked me to stay on as COO of Yahoo. And I, I just wasn't comfortable um, that that was going to be a good decision for me, even though it was an, an incredible honor because they had acquired, I don't know, 13 or 14 companies at that point and had not asked anybody to stay on in a capacity for the parent company. But I just, I, it just wasn't something I was ready to do. So anyway, so we sold Mark's story. Of course, everyone knows pretty in depth. So Mark bought the Dallas Mavericks, um, uh, you know, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I bought a small stake in the team. Mark had said, hey, maybe we do this together. But I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, frankly. I'm this kid from Gary. All of a sudden, I have this like pile of, of potential monies to do something with. And I just didn't know. And that began my foray into philanthropy. So about 20 years ago now, I started my own foundation because I literally could not live with myself if I didn't figure out a way how to take some of what had just happened to me and give or help or do something to try to assist others. So for me, my hammer and nail story was Gary, Indiana, meaning I was very used to inner cities. That's the world I grew up in. I knew it very well. Um, and so I wanted to help at-risk kids and wasn't sure I was going to do it. But I, I took a meeting. I was able to, to take that meeting because of, of what had just happened to me. 
with with Arnold Schwarzenegger before he was governor, and he was chairman of an organization um, that was then called the Inner City Games, and we renamed it eventually to After School All Stars, and it still exists to this day. And one of the things I asked Arnold if I could do was to bring that to Dallas. So I brought the After School All Stars program to Dallas to help at risk youth, and that was the beginnings of my getting into philanthropy for what mattered to me, which was at-risk kids. That's what struck my chord. So I got involved then with the Boys and Girls Clubs. Um, I created a technology program called Miracles, which was to help kids to learn technology skills because I was a huge believer then as now. If we can learn things, they can't be taken from you. And so that's what we did. We created miracles each of the letters stood for a different thing that the program did it was measurement and etc cetera, etc cetera. and we eventually rolled it into the boys and girls clubs and put it into about 200 labs around the country so that that first foray into philanthropy was interesting because at first as an entrepreneur I wanted to just do it all myself because that's just what I was used to. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would see something, I would see its inefficiencies, I would see what I didn't like about it, and I'd, and I'd just say, well, I can do this better. Mm -hmm. and that's why we created miracles. And then as I got deeper into it, I started to say, you know, I understand that, that some of these organizations, my role will be to help them, um, to maybe take them to places they haven't been, or maybe to open doors, or maybe to write a check. But I wanted, in, it was incredibly important in those early years that I not just write a check. I wanted to give of my time. I hoped some talent um, along with the treasure. And, and that, was, that was my journey into philanthropy. And I know that um, you're, as you got deeper into philanthropy and you got more involved and people asked you to write more and more checks and get more and more involved in different philanthropies, you, as you learned about philanthropy and experienced it yourself, you started getting frustrated. And as we know, frustration is usually the catalyst for some change. And so can you talk a little bit about this idea of disrupting the status quo and this concept of philanthropy that you started developing at that time? So the other thing I did after I launched my foundation was I got heavily into the media business with, with Mark. And we started a production company called 2929 Productions and another company called Magnolia Pictures to distribute the movies and a cable network that was initially called HDNet and eventually Access TV. So I was definitely, quote, flexing my muscles of understanding Hollywood and the movie business and then trying to do the philanthropic stuff to go with it. But if you are an entrepreneur, and I would certainly like to think that I am, I think it's an incredibly overused term, and I'm going to explain why in a second. But if you're an entrepreneur, you just can't leave well enough alone. <laughs> you know, entrepreneurs are the people that, you know, it's that old, is the glass half full or half empty? Entrepreneurs are like, why is it water? Why is it being poured in a glass? Why are we using a pitcher? You know, can we turn it upside down? Entrepreneurs have a very different take on the world. And I tell people all the time, be certain you really want to be an entrepreneur because it's not necessarily the most <laughs> attractive <laughs> skill set or personality at times. I have a quote and I'm going to I'm going to read it for you today because I think it's the best quote describing an entrepreneur that I've ever seen. 
And I tell people this because I want them to know that don't just call yourself an entrepreneur. Maybe you're a business owner. And by the way, being a business owner is amazing. But if you're not disrupting something, if you're not creating an industry, if you're not doing something that maybe has not been seen before, i.e. electric cars, i.e. streaming media, et cetera, you're not necessarily an entrepreneur. You are, you are a business owner and you should be incredibly proud of that. But I think the term entrepreneur is getting dragged around a bit too much. So there's, it comes from a gentleman who passed away named Teddy Forsman, and I will read it. The entrepreneur, as a creator of the new and a destroyer of the old, is constantly in conflict with convention. He or she inhabits a world where belief precedes results and where the best possibilities are usually invisible to others. Their world is dominated by denial, rejection, difficulty, and doubt. And although as an innovator, they are unceasingly imitated when successful, they remain an outsider to the establishment. They are usually found disturbing and irritating and <laughs> even unemployable. And I think that, you know, if we were, if Elon Musk or whoever we want to pull up as, quote, the prototype, they fit these definitions. And, and I've been blessed enough to know most of the great entrepreneurs, you know, Steve Jobs on down. They fit these definitions. And I always tell people, just be careful um, what it is you think you aspire to in life, because there are ups and downs to that world. I always called myself a tweener entrepreneur because pure entrepreneurs at 18 years old drop out of college. Uh, you know, the, the Zuckerbergs, the Gateses, the Jobs, they just, they just can't do it. And then there's tweeners like me who have to get kicked around a little bit and then all of a sudden wake up and go, this is not for me. I'm not going to be doing this the rest of my life. But it is an important thing. And so when it, when it came to philanthropy, I had that same approach. You're right. I did get upset. I started getting a little more like, why is it being done this way? Why is it always lack of accountability? Why is it, you know, that they just come around for a check, but there's not a lot of insight into how the money was spent or why? And that became an increasingly increasing source of agitation to me um, on the philanthropic side of my journey was why couldn't we take some of the things that I learned in the for-profit world and potentially apply some of that to the nonprofit world. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that differentiates you from so many other philanthropists um, and thought leaders in the business world, but also in the philanthropy world. And you have this idea of like combining, it's sort of entrepreneur plus charity equals. Um, and I think we're still getting to where, the, where, where it equals. I do want to talk a little bit about this idea of not-for-profits being treated more like for-profit businesses, um, this idea of accountability. And I know that you had this idea about like a real-life rating system for 501c3s that would demonstrate you know, a better rating system to evaluate charities and where the money goes and the social impact. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we have actually launched a company called Cause Reports. Um, we have actually completed our first vertical, which is uh, veterans charities. And what we do is an in-depth analysis of these organizations, but we treat it like public equities, meaning 
We don't go after, and I don't, you know, go after, analyze the ones that are smaller or midsize. We're going after the ones that raise the lion's share of the monies within these verticals. Be why? Because I feel like they should be accountable. Mm -hmm. For the same reason that if I want to buy Netflix or Apple stock, there's an incredible amount of information. There are analyst reports. I can see metrics of whether I'm interested, you know, gee, maybe I think they don't have enough subscriber growth, or maybe I think it was a mistake to raise their price another dollar a month. But I have a whole litany of things that I can look at to decide if I want to buy Apple or Netflix or whatever the case may be. But in the nonprofit world, that is incredibly hard to come by. So there have been rating agencies, and there are, that, that give out stars and guidance. And I think it's a great, in my mind, first step, but let's not mistake what it really is. Most of these foundations and charities manage to what is perceived as the another star, but more importantly, the, the most important metric is what's, how much is overhead, mm-hmm. how much is going towards the organization and how much is going to programs. Well, I'm here to tell you that those numbers can absolutely be manipulated. They can be skewed. They can play games so that they meet this, quote, metric test, whatever it may be, 80%, 90%, 93%, 88% of some number that in theory goes to programs. And then people feel really good. Oh, this is a great company. I would argue you don't know anything about the company. You have one metric. Just like in public companies, if I had to evaluate a company based on one metric, which was its margin, maybe its gross margin or net margin, what an awful ability to really know if that's a company I'm interested in. I would need to know so many more things in order to decide if this company is doing the right things. So that's what we set out to do. So we have done it. We have launched it. We are, in fact, in talks with a couple very big investment banks about using it on behalf of their clients. We are looking at whether we eventually make it kind of a consumer reports and take it out to the public. We are about to put up the second vertical of reports next. Um, I'm really, really proud of it. I'm really proud of the rigor and the analysis that our team does when we publish a report. We do an incredibly deep dive on everything from the 990s to public information. We interview the management team if they're willing to get on the phone. We go through everything that is out there around that company and around that industry. And then we make judgments and we do ratings and we say what we think is good or bad about each of these entities. And I think it's pretty unique. So anyway, yes, we have we have stopped talking about it and decided to just do it. And we are in the early stages of this. But I'm really glad because at the end of the day, You can look at it as a negative or a positive. The really good 501c3s, I want them to be praised. I want people to know more about them. I want people to feel comfortable that if they have $100 or $100,000 to give to charity, that it's going to the best in that space. Not the one that contacted them, not the one that's best at fundraising, not the one that's best in all other ways, but that's doing the best, most effective job. And if we do that, I feel really good about it because I want the other ones to either manage up to where these top of the the scale companies are, or maybe they don't raise as much money. 
And maybe perhaps over time, some of these big organizations can actually achieve the goals that we've set for them because more money's come their way, which allow them to hire more people, which allow them to potentially pay these people the amount they need to take on huge tasks that we are asking of them. We have right now an absolute self-fulfilling prophecy of there is not a chance that these organizations are going to be able to deliver what we want. So it just becomes a feel good for everybody to quote, make a donation. So yes, Jan, <laughs> long-winded way of saying, absolutely, after many, many years, I, I was not happy enough to just write checks. I wanted to see if we could pull the covers back a little bit and, and in some ways be disruptive yet again um, in this industry, which is ripe for a little disruption, but not to me in a scary way, just in a way like, let's let the good ones that we really know about them and maybe the ones that ought not be there, we should talk about them too. I mean, another thing I will say to you, Janice, think about this, rattle off to me five public companies that are over a hundred years old. I'll wait. I'm being a little flip, but mm -hmm. past General Electric and maybe, you know, one or you, you can't name them. Why? Mm -hmm. Because things change so rapidly and companies go out of business or whatever. But in the nonprofit world, <laughs> they're all I still can there. Name, I can <laughs> name you 10. Right. So that tells you all you need to know. So it is it is an important piece of what we do philanthropically. I still want to support, I still want to do all the right things, but I just want us to ask questions. So yes, that is in process and we're early, but I'm, I'm really happy with where it's headed. Now people can see why I decided to come work for you because of the vision that you have, um, which is a perfect segue into the charity network. Um, and you, uh, you know, as part of your vision in, in disrupting philanthropy and, and also making philanthropy more efficient and effective, you purchased Charity Buzz and Prizio and a consulting firm to kind of create a one-stop shop for people and to expand the, um, the capabilities of fundraising. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, back to these frustrations, the other, the other one that I had is I felt like some of these charities um, not all, but some were trapped, you know, in 20 year ago land. And I wanted them to become current. I wanted them to understand digital. I wanted them to understand that things had changed and there was no going back that just sending out mailers, uh, was, and having a gala was probably not going to be the future of how this was going to work. And it doesn't take a crystal ball to figure that out. We just look at everything that's going on in the world right now. And, and even the pandemic and what it changed and some of the things that will never go back to the way they were before. To know that this industry also was going to continue to be impacted. So because I, I, I wanted to do it in a way that could be helpful to them, I thought, what if we just like guided them into how to do this? So they didn't have to set up the staff, hire the people, create the expertise to understand digital marketing, digital sales, websites, you know, uh, paid media, everything else that has evolved, all the social media ways to raise money. What if we could guide them and structure it in a way that we took a fee to cover hopefully our services and our overhead, but raised an enormous percentage for cause 
um, and it could be a new revenue stream, a complementary revenue stream, and allow them to do the things they always did, but perhaps help guide them into this new world because it felt like they weren't going to get there on their own and maybe certainly not fast enough for my taste. And I wanted to kind of nudge them out of the nest a little bit. And it seems like usually if you can raise money for people, they'll listen. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting because um, there is sort of an old school mentality with so many of the, of the organizations and looking at philanthropy and sort of this broader context, 360 approach, that diversification of how you do the fundraising is so important. And you've opened up this, you know, this new avenue for people to do that virtual and digital fundraising. Um, Charity Buzz is an online auction platform and Prizeo is an online sweepstakes platform. And, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the Broadway partnerships that have come about in the last five years that we've worked on together, uh, whether it's the Tonys or specific Broadway shows or organizations that uh, like Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, or talent like our favorite Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, the beauty of what Charity Buzz and Prizio do is, yes, it's raising money, but it's also doing it in a, I hope, a very positive way. So you're getting the word out as well. It's not just a check. It's also in some ways in keeping with society. So when we are working with the celebrities to post things on their social media accounts, it's also a way to, to talk about the things that, that are happening. And, and that's what I love about these platforms is you know charity buzz is definitely an ability to reach people that are typically a bit more affluent um but it, it's giving them these once in a lifetime experiences that they might not otherwise have and that's an, a very important demographic to most charities and so we are bringing them i always describe it as like a, a digital or a virtual stadium together to bid on something. Whereas if you were at the gala, there might be 20 people who had the means to bid on something. In this situation, we can bring hundreds, if not thousands of people capable of bidding on something. And that only grows. And in the pandemic for, for Charity Buzz, you know, we did a lot of virtual everything mm -hmm. because we had to. And all that does is grow the user base. So we have more people it's, it's kind of like the early days of Netflix. I remember sitting on a panel with, with Ted Sarandis and they wanted to know about the model of Netflix. And he said, it's really pretty simple. We get more content, we get more subscribers. We get more subscribers, we can buy more content. We buy more content, we get, it's the mm -hmm. same thing with Charity Buzz. The more good stuff we can put up there, the more people that are interested. And the more people that are interested, then guess what? We can go get more good stuff. And that's really what I think has hit for Charity Buzz is we have figured out finally how to be a little bit of truly an e-commerce site, how to be able to offer a wide variety of things in ways that they may want to process it. Meaning, you know, we still have many, many things that come from our charity partners. We also create specialty things that we get access to that are up for people as well. We also have what we call VIP or specialized stuff that people can get if they want kind of a bespoke experience. You know, we also have kind of the, the ultimate impulse buy, the buy it now category, which is literally just like you would do at a gala. Many times, as I know folks know, the silent auction piece is kind of a buy it now. You can just go on and, and pay for it. We've brought that functionality to Charity Buzz 
where many of the items you can just quote buy it now we still have all the auction functionality we always have that's continued to grow but my view is is that charity buzz is evolving and growing up as it should to have a bunch of different revenue streams and a bunch of ways to reach people and leveraging it all digitally and 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 that is something that the analog world just cannot replicate the ability to get something in front of a lot of people very quickly. And so that's been great. And Prizio is in many ways, I always liken it to the other side of that coin. It's a bit more to the masses. It's much more of the 10 or 20 or $50 donation with a chance to also have that same experience. So whether you call it democratizing fundraising or whatever words you want to use, it just broadens out the offering of the charity network and the ability to reach people of different backgrounds, different income levels, different interests in, in different ways. And I don't think that's going to end. It's just that now we've gotten a little smarter about the e-commerce piece and the ability to put more things on there that are of interest to people. Because again, you, you know my journey on philanthropy. I don't care why people donate. I just want them to do it. So if we can give you something that's interesting to you, like a body, bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, and you want to buy that, and 80% of it goes to charity, I am all for it. You know, And so if it's Saturday Night Live tickets, if it's a meet and greet with somebody that's on your bucket list, I'm great. It, you know, it, That's the whole beauty to me of the charity network is it's that sleight of hand. It's that ability to give people what they want, and then they can feel good about it. So sure, they could go buy it somewhere else, but if they do it on our e-commerce platform, they're making a really hefty donation to charity and they can feel good about that on so many levels. Yeah, it really is a win-win situation. And, and um, you know, people get an amazing experience and they get to feel good about the fact that they've donated to do something good. And a lot of the Broadway um, shows and different philanthropies within the Broadway space. And a lot of the Broadway celebrities are now leveraging this to, to do good for their own personal and for their shows. Um, you know, we, we keep talking about philanthropy and social impact and social responsibility and charity and cause, and there's so many words for it. And I think we've never ever come up with like, what is the right word? And it doesn't even matter. But I just wanted to ask you personally, what is what is the concept of philanthropy? What does it mean to you? You know, as you know, it's a concept that goes back hundreds of years in this country. But but for me, it just means what each of us are supposed to do. And I'm going to give you two really famous people examples that that spoke to me many, many years ago. One of them was Quincy Jones. So I got to know Quincy pretty early on because we did a movie with, with Bob De Niro. And, I, and so I got, I got to spend a lot of time with Quincy. Amazing, amazing man, obviously. And I remember sitting with Quincy and I was getting into my philanthropy and he was really being complimentary. Like, Todd, I think it's great you're doing this. And I, you know, it's amazing what you're doing here. And I said, Quincy, I, I appreciate it, but I can only do a fraction of what you do. I don't have your name recognition. I can't do the things that you're able to do. And he said something to me that stuck with me all these years. He said, you know, each of us do what we can. Some of us lift a finger. Some of us have the wherewithal to lift an entire hand. Some of us can lift an arm or a body or a leg of someone. But together, we lift the person. 
And that really spoke to me. It's like, you know, because I think all of us sometimes are like, well, what's my little pebble in the ocean? Why would I even bother? Nobody's going to feel it. But I think Quincy's point was, and I think dead on right, which is, but that is it. Together, we can accomplish almost anything. You know, this is obviously not a podcast about climate change, but we have an enormous problem on our hands. And it will take global attacking of this problem in means that I don't even think most of us realize how complicated this issue is and how much is going to have to be changed. I don't think most of us do in order for this to work because these conditions don't, quote, reverse themselves, but that's a topic for another day. But as it relates to philanthropy, it's the same idea. We each need to do our part because it's the right thing to do as human beings. It's the right thing to do to help others that maybe through no fault of their own, or sometimes, frankly, through fault of their own, are not where they wanted to be or life didn't go the way they wanted it to. And, and we all deserve a helping hand, all of us. And then the second one, again, very famous person, was Governor Schwarzenegger. And I remember Arnold saying, and this one also stuck with me, he said, the first 40 years of my life, I looked in the mirror and all I saw was myself. And then I broke the mirror and now I look out and I see everybody else who needs help. And that, to me, those are the powerful reasons in my mind for philanthropy is we have so many people who need whatever we can give to them. And I believe it's our responsibility to do that if we can. And everybody can do a little. And that's, and, and that's the thing. Now, yes, those that have more should do more. And I, and I, I think that's fair. I, I related to that, Jan, to me, is a, it's a, a Jack Welch quote from GE, who it, it's about leadership, but it's the same idea. He said, you know, before you're a leader, you know, success is all about growing yourself. Mm-hmm. And then when you become a leader, success is all about growing others. And I'd like to think at this point in my life, that's what I try to do in the companies that I own or help run or invest in is I'm, I'm coached now, right? I'm not on the field anymore. I've done that. I'm really proud of some of the things we did, but I'm coaching others to play up to their best potential because I think that's important to give back, not only philanthropically, but in the business world too. That's where I would hope the main thrust of my skill set is. And so I'm trying to always coach and teach and, and give them little, you know, I rattle off, you know, a Teddy Roosevelt quote every week, you know, hey, the best thing you can do is to make the right decision. And the second best thing you can do is to make the wrong decision. And the worst thing you can do is to make no decision. You know, trying to teach people we have to do a little ready, fire, aim in our lives and in business. And so that to me is all part and parcel of the same thing. We all try to do what we can back to what I said at the very beginning of our remarks, which is if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? What I can do is shaped on what I've learned, what I've been exposed to, which is going to be very different from what somebody else has learned or been exposed to. And they will hopefully leverage their skill set and their aptitudes and their expertise in ways that I cannot. But I'll do my little piece. They'll do their little piece. And together, hopefully, we'll do a lot. 
Um, before we wrap up, um, I would love to ask you uh, if you have any advice that you'd like to give to the listeners of this podcast. Yeah, I've always been a fan of, of quotes. Um, why? Because I think they're incredibly inspirational. And then it's not just, gee, what does Todd think? It's what others that hopefully that have a lot more credibility than I do think. And, and it could potentially inspire people. I know I have put quotes around my desk my entire adult life, and I stare at them to try to motivate myself because none of us wake up every day ready, like go, hey, let's go do this today. Let's, let's put in 12 hours. It'll be a blast. And so there are moments that we all need a little push. And so I'm a big fan of them because I think it, it, it instills in us the understanding that certain things don't come easily. Those are the things that I feel like are incredibly powerful and motivate people no matter where you're from, no matter what your background is. And so if I had any words, those are the words I would leave people is try to find quotes that speak to you, that you that really speak to you and put them around you so that you see them. Thank you so much, Coach. Um, loved all the sports references too. Um, privileged to be a player on your team, and I'm so honored that you took the time to be part of this podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jan. It was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, editor, and friend, Jim Lochner. And thank you to everyone at BPN, including Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Kimberly Garris. I'd also like to thank Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency and Eric Becker from Broderick Street Music. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit vpn.fm slash Broadway Gives Back. Thanks so much. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.